Good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. You have made it to the most exciting hour of your week. So we're so glad you're here uh, this morning. Oh, the excitement is rippling out of the crowd right now. Yes. <laughs> hey, uh, y'all, things are getting difficult. Things are getting pretty intense. Things are getting bad. Our buddy Nehemiah is going to go through some tough stuff this morning. Will you open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5? We've been in this sermon series called Awakening. We've been studying the life of Nehemiah. There's a lot for us to learn from this man's life from a leadership perspective, uh, but a lot of it has to do with really the way that God's people interact with one another. And you'll find that much of the things, many of the things that Nehemiah has been up against that we will see in our current context, see these things happening again and again and again. As we've gone through this sermon series to this, to this point, and if you're a guest with us this morning, I just have to tell you, chapters 1 through 4, we've seen all kinds of opposition from the outside. There's outside forces uh, fighting and interacting against Nehemiah, trying to make his job bad. What is the job that he's done? Well, he's taken on the responsibility of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now, he's not the first one to try to take this job on. Uh, first, we have a man named Zerubbabel. He came and he got 50,000 people to come with him to go back and repair Jerusalem. And then a few years later, we see Ezra, who also comes back, and he fulfills the role of, of bringing people together in Jerusalem. He says, we got to also deal with the spiritual matters at hand before the walls can be rebuilt. But then we learn in the first chapter of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah gets the word back and he finds out those guys who have left, he says, what's the word on the street? What's going on? How is progress going? That not much had been done at all. And Nehemiah's heart is burdened for Jerusalem and burdened for his people. And he organizes and gets together a plan that he sets in front of the king and says, King Xerxes, will you let me go and work on the city to rebuild the walls? His heart is broken for these broken walls and broken hearts. And so we find ourselves in chapter 5. We've gone through a number of the outside forces that are working against him, but the inside or the internal opposition is what we're going to be dealing with today. Up to this point, things have been going pretty well. We, we learned that Nehemiah is in charge. Nehemiah is a great leader. He kind of puts things in order where, where we have all these different guys are responsible for the different parts and they're doing a good job. They're getting the work done. The walls have been built to half of their height in the full circumference of the city. There's even men who are fighting with one hand and working with a trowel with the other to put this wall back together. Things are going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, chapter 5 opens with this outcry. That's a pretty good outcry. <laughs> With an outcry. <laughs> so if you've got your outlines for you this morning, the first statement we make at the beginning of this outline that kind of gets you where we're going this morning is this. Who needs enemies? We've got each other. I was at a wedding a few years ago. Uh, and if you've been to a wedding this summer or, or, or something like that, there's always in every wedding, there's a best man speech and there is a maid of honor speech and, and all of them. And there's, there's always a good story that that person brings to the table and lets you know a little bit maybe that you didn't know about the bride or the groom. 
this particular wedding, I had officiated the wedding, and we went to the reception, and, and for whatever reason, first, the, the best man went, and the best man, I mean, he went to town. I mean, he decided that this was a roasting of the bride, and he just let her have it. And then normally, you know, if you, if you see that or you hear that, there's just, it's like, it's all in good fun, the poking and jabbing, and then it resolves. You say, but I really love her, and she's really special, and it's such a great day. And he didn't do that. And then the maid of honor said something, and she did this. She, like, followed suit, and she just, like, right hook, left hook, went after the bride. And then, and she didn't resolve it. And then the father, whose job was to pray for the meal, he then, he, he followed the keys of, of the two that had spoken before, and then he followed in and said, well, you should hear the stories that I've got to tell. And he told about how she was lazy, would never get out of bed, and how she couldn't manage her money well. And one thing after another after another, and they said, let's pray. <laughs> it, was, it was painful to be there. It was super awkward because this family had just turned on themselves for whatever reason on this bride's very, very special day. And the rest of us are looking around going, did you just see what happened there? Who needs enemies? We've got each other. The rest of the statement goes like this. To do the Lord's work, we must resolve conflicts in a godly manner. And what is the biblical way for us to do this? To do the Lord's work, we must resolve conflicts in a godly manner. What is the biblically healthy way for us to do this? I'm glad you asked. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah Chapter 5, the first villain for you this morning is exploitation, the outcry. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> two for two, I like it. The outcry of the people, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. If you're following along in the Bibles, in front of the Pew Bibles, you're on page 507 or 508. Uh, we're in the New International Version. If you're using a tablet or a phone and you want to use the U Version, New International Version, Nehemiah chapter 5. Five, Verse 1, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry, circle that, against the fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have been subject, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. As we said, we have faced opposition from the outside. But this opposition is on the inside. And we need to be very aware that in this story of Nehemiah, in our own stories, that the adversary thinks this way. If you can't beat him, join him. This is the way the adversary works. Why? Because look at this passage. If you look through and you'll follow along with me today, in chapter 5, we've been building the wall, building the wall, building the wall, building the wall. In chapter 5, there's no evidence of building the wall. Everything comes to a stop in Nehemiah chapter 5. The work stops dead in its tracks. You see, in a church quarrel, all the devil does is this. He's neutral. He just supplies ammunition 
to both sides. The devil doesn't have to work at all. He just supplies ammunition to that, that division that's already there in the church, that conflict that's already there. And that's exactly what he does here with God's people. He just supplies ammunition to both sides so that they can take shots at each other. The poor people here in Jerusalem are grumbling about the rich people there. That doesn't seem too weird, right? The poor people are grumbling about the rich people. There's two primary concerns that they have. The wealthy landowners have been collecting interest on the loans that they've given to the poor. Wealthy landowners collecting interest, exorbitant interest, on the poor that they have loaned money to. Here's your second issue is that the same wealthy landowners have been selling their poor brothers and sisters into slavery. So first there's this big pile of interest that's building up against their brothers and sisters. And then when it gets too extreme, then uh, we see that they also begin to put them into slavery because of that. This is a good opportunity for me to be able to share with you that this is not just something that happened 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago. But this is literally happening today in a very similar situation. We talked uh, two weeks ago about International Justice Mission and Freedom Sunday. And we talked about how uh, their mission statement is until all are free. And around the world, we deal with slavery around the world. But in many situations, this is exactly what it looks like. Cliff Miller's one of our elders, and Brian, they, uh, Pastor Brian, they went last week, they went down to a conference the International Justice Mission did, and they heard story after story after story that sounded like this. This is one that I'm taking from them. That it was about a woman named Rita. And Rita, she had just become a widow. She cried as she lost her husband, but there was a lot more than just the tears of losing her husband. She was also angry. She was scared. She had six little children, six little children, and they all watched her cry almost every day. Her in-laws, who once accepted her warmly as family, now became vicious. They were out to harm her and her children. They wanted her land. Her relatives went out and cut down her crops and then threatened her with machetes if she tried to stop them. They took over the little shop that Rita and her husband had once owned to make money. So this caused Rita's children to have to drop out of school because she couldn't afford to pay for it. One of the relatives told a passerby, I'm going to cut this lady into pieces and her children as well. They are still not leaving this, this piece of land. Why would they insist on staying? She had no money left. She walked into a police station and begged them to help and they wouldn't. But one of them, someone spoke up and said, there's this ministry, this agency called International Justice Mission. Maybe you can talk to them and see what they can do. And so this is a ministry whose goal is very legal in their approach, that they were legally going to defend Rita. And they went through the process of doing that and dealing with the corruption of the family and the corruption of the government and the corruption of all that was around. Her. And they had to legally support her so that she could hold on to what was rightfully hers. This is happening today. The wealthy take advantage of the poor. Back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. So in, in our reality of what we know and what we understand and what we can get our minds around, the idea of, of charging interest and the idea of putting people into slavery, there, there's one that really outweighs the other in awfulness, if you will. 
in our minds, we think of, well, he's just charging some interest. I mean, he's a businessman, I guess, so, so we're not too mad about him for that. But the slavery thing, we really have a problem with in our modern culture dealing with that. And that's okay. Let, let, let's just move on from there and understand that we know that there's something the matter with what's going on here. But here's the problem is that the laws are not just this, this moral code that we kind of live by and say, I don't think there's anything good about slavery. Th these laws were specific to the Jews, that Jesus, excuse me, that in the Old Testament that we see God has given them very specific laws against this. Turn over a couple of pages for you. It's Leviticus chapter 25. You want to turn over there, flip your way over there very quickly. But Leviticus chapter 25, this is the law that Moses has given to the people. Through God speaking through Moses, he has given this law to the people. And check out what it says in Leviticus chapter 25. It says this in verse 35. If so situationally, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so that they continue to live among you. Verse 36, do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. Does that sound familiar to the situation that they are in? Literally, there is a law specifically on the books that God has given them to protect these people, and they are 100% going and denying that law about charging interest to their brothers and sisters who are poor. Skip ahead a few verses to verse 39, the same chapter, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 39. If, situationally, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and they sell themselves to you, do not make them work as what? Slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was a time every seven years that all debts were erased. This was the way that God had set things up for the people of Israel. So he said, in seven years, this person owes you a lot of money. Do not make them a slave. Treat them like a hired hand. And then at the seven-year mark, do what? Release them. Their debt would be paid. They would freely be able to move around. Nehemiah is not praying just for a su successful construction project. He's trying to deal with a total remodeling of people's hearts. Why had these people been exiled? Why was Israel in uh, Babylon? Why were they pulled away from their land? Because they had gotten away from the very law that God had given them. And now they have the opportunity to come back to their land. And what are they doing? The same stuff. And he could rebuild the walls. And they could rebuild the temple. And they could build some really great facilities to worship in. But at the end of the day, if there was not a remodeling that was going to go on in their hearts, they were going to be in the exact same position. This is why Nehemiah gets so angry with them. That's our second point this morning, if you're following along. The anger of Nehemiah. The anger of Nehemiah. Verse 6. When I heard their what? Outcry, circle it, mark it, highlight it. And these charges, I became very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, 
As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Nehemiah is angry. He is upset. Why? Because these people of God were good on the outside and rotten on the inside. Good on the outside and rotten on the inside. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He's dealing with religious leaders of the day. And he says, you are like whitewashed sepulchers or tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of what? Dead bones. I play saxophone. And my daughter, Delia, is, she's, she's playing the oboe. She's played it for two or three years now, and she wants to be involved in jazz band. And last year, they let her play the oboe in jazz band. There's not a lot of jazz oboe things out there. And so uh, we've been talking about it with her instructor, and we think that this year, if she wants to do jazz band, that she can also pick up the saxophone and learn how to play the saxophone in jazz band. The oboe and the saxophone are not the same, but they're similar enough. It's possible for her to do that. So today when we leave the service, I've got a sax in the office and I'm going to take it home and I'm going to hand it to her and talk her through how things are the same, how they're different, and she's going to learn how to play the saxophone. How many of you have played a wind instrument at some point in your life? Raise your hand this morning. This doesn't mean that you could play at a concert right now, but you, you know that you have played. Okay, so what's the first rule of all wind instruments? Say it with me. Don't eat chocolate <laughs> and play your instrument. Have you heard this before? No. Well, let me tell you a little story about what happens if you eat chocolate and play your instrument. I was in my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year, so I knew how to play my instrument. And what ended up happening is our band, of all things, we were doing a fundraiser so that we could go to do this travel thing that we wanted to do with the band. And we had these little boxes that we would carry around, boxes of candy bars. And so I sold my whole box of candy bars to myself. A dollar a pop, I, I know all of you do this, or you make your mom and dad do this, and that's fine. So like at a dollar a pop, every day after lunch, I would have my candy bar. And so one Friday, uh, what ended up happening was I had my lunch, and then band would follow lunch, and I ate my candy bar, and I played my saxophone with a nice, good, fresh chocolate caramel uh, candy bar and blew it through my saxophone. So I come back in Monday morning, and uh, same routine eat my chocolate after lunch, get out my saxophone, and everything looks good on the outside. I pick up the saxophone, and you should, if you play a, a woodwind instrument, you should definitely take your reed off and lick your reed and get it all wet and down. But I was late, as I usually was, and so I just needed to jump in my seat, put it in my mouth, and start playing in the band rehearsal. So when I put that thing in my mouth, it was a mouthpiece full, choco block full of maggots. Oh. 
it had a few days to sit there and enjoy the chocolatiness of that mouthpiece. And when I put that baby in my mouth, I'm gonna tell you what, I stood up pretty quickly in rehearsal and excused myself. I mean, I can still feel them wiggling around in my mouth. <laughs> what looks good on the outside might be rotten inside. But I'm gonna tell you what, like Jesus said in the New Testament, I wanna spew that out of my mouth. And sin is like that. And the reality is a lot of times we go, you know what? It doesn't taste so bad until you get a mouthful of maggots. And it is vile. And it is sick. And what looked good on the outside, Nehemiah reacts to because he knows what is vile on the inside. It's rotten. And became angry when he learned of the selfishness and the greed and the lack of compassion on the part of the rich. Nehemiah was angry. But check out verse 7. It tells us how he ang handled his anger. He said, I consulted with myself, or I pondered in my mind. Rather than impulsively flying off the handle immediately, you see him take a pause. You see him get his thoughts together. You see him take some perspective, take some time to cool off before acting and reacting. He got his facts together, and what did he do? He gathered an assembly of people together, and he had a good plan for how to respond to his anger. He didn't just come at him swinging. He had a plan. And sometimes when we get angry, we just react. Really, we need to respond in a very healthy manner. He responded by pressing the matter and calling these guilty individuals and, he, and calling them together and tell them to return what they had. And he said, do it this very day. Do it today. He did not ask him to go home and think about what he had presented. He didn't ask him even to go home and pray about a response. He said, no, today you need to return what you have done. He simply asked them to rectify the situation at once. Do not pass go. Correct this problem now. And you and I should always deal with and respond to sin in the exact same manner. Do not pass go. Deal with this problem now. Check out how people responded. Verse 12, the response of the guilty. Verse 12, the response of the guilty. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. In order to ensure that they would carry out the promise, Nehemiah had the guilty individuals take an oath. So we're going to actually follow through with what we say before the priest that they would fulfill their word. And then Nehemiah symbolically takes out his robe and just flicks out his robe. And you can imagine all kinds of nastiness that was in their robe. I just did a, a, a minor construction thing in my home this weekend where we, we had a closet that was facing on the wrong side. So we wanted to put a door on the other side. And so there was a closet. And I will tell you what, I mean, we put sheets over everything. But the, the amount of debris that gets in the air when you start popping uh, sheetrock apart. And it just, all the stuff that gets in the air, I mean, it is 
everywhere. And so we had a big sheet over our bed to cover up our bed so that I didn't have to sleep in that filth. But if I had taken that sheet and just kind of flicked it into the air just to see what would happen and it just spreads everywhere, that's what the visual is that Nehemiah is giving these leaders. He's saying, just like I can shake this out and every little piece that's here falls out, let that happen to you if you don't follow through. All that wealth that you're trying to put together, all of the things that make you feel good about yourself and the power and the prestige, let God just shake that out and have it all fly all over the place if you don't fulfill the promise that you have made here today. This was a dramatic way of showing the violators that God would shake them and empty their possessions if they violated this oath which they had taken before the priests. The illustration or the example of Nehemiah is found in verse 14. That's a fill-in for you today. The example of Nehemiah. The example of Nehemiah. Moreover, verse 14, from the 20th year of King Xerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, so that's 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceded me, they placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels of silver and put them in addition to the food and the wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry prepared for me in every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Now, Ezra is the one who's actually documenting the words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah hasn't penned these things down, but Ezra actually writes down things for him in first person to be able to tell us the story of what's happened. So Ezra is documenting the fact that he did not take the governor's rate, if you will. So the governor's mansion and the governor's stuff that all comes from being appointed by King Xerxes over Judah. He didn't take those things for himself, but he invited all of these people who were hungry and they had been put under this, this high interest and they have been put in slavery. He's brought them all to his table day after day after day and feeds them because the most important thing that he can do is repair this wall and lead these people. He gives a great example of what it means to be a man of character, to lead with character. You see what you're seeing here, he gives examples of other governors who have gone before him is what we call trimming the fat basically in politics today where there's all these little things that get slipped in there and the governors would always do that and he's demonstrating that. But himself, he said, I have to be a man of character. I have to be an example to these people. I have to illustrate what God has done for each and every one of us by allowing people to be here and sharing in the abundance that I have. His 12-year term from 444 to 432 B.C. as governor. He's recording the fact that he was entitled to a food allowance, but he never used it. Nehemiah concludes in verse 19 with a prayer which reveals part of his motivation. His motivation for living a godly life, living a, a powerful life as a leader was to do what? To secure the blessings of God. Because God, please bless me for, for dealing with, he even says, these people. <laughs> And that's okay. That's okay. He said, I'm, I'm living for a, a higher calling, something bigger than what I have right here before me. 
But we can't stop there. And I realize that if you're taking those notes on that white sheet of paper, that actually even my notes stop here. And that's probably a mistake. So I'm going to add one more that you're going to have to fill in and write in the whole thing for yourself. Because, yes, we have an illustration. We have the example of Nehemiah. But let's fast forward to the New Testament and we get this. The solution. The solution. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the matchless grace of Jesus Christ. The matchless grace of Jesus Christ. I've told you as we've gone throughout this series, it's a mistake for us to say, walk away this morning and say, live like Nehemiah. No, no. Because at the end of the day, Nehemiah was a great leader. He did some really great things, but God's people still fell apart. The walls still were in ruins years later. They still needed a savior to come and rescue them, which leads us to the solution the matchless grace of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through you, that you through his poverty, might become rich. You see, Nehemiah had this dream of a new Jerusalem where things would be better, things would be different, the walls would be built and they would protect themselves from the physical enemies, but then also spiritually there would be this rebuilding of the walls, the rebuilding of hearts. But that wasn't going to come to fruition until later. (coughs) You see, God made a way to be sure that access would be there for those who were far away from him, who wanted to be close to him. He, he made it possible through his son Jesus and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have access to God's very presence through his blood and through his sacrifice. We can live in the new Jerusalem. We can live as the new Jerusalem through the matchless grace of Jesus. Anyone familiar with that hymn? Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. I got a few nods here. Gray hymnals, it's gotta be in the gray hymnal. Four ninety seven. Four ninety seven. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Are you familiar with this song? Some of you are, some of you aren't. All right, we're gonna do a little educating this morning if you're not familiar with this song. This song is like the song for the men in the church, okay? You finally get to have a little showtime. Uh, ladies always get, in, in, in hymns, ladies always get to have all the pomp and circumstance. But this one, this one is for the men. Let's see, here we go. Uh, we're going to sing this, guys. Oh, here it is. We're going to sing it a cappella because that's what we do here, I guess. So stand up. Let's sing this song. One wonderful grace of Jesus. You familiar with this song? You're about to be. Here we go. Two, three. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall the praise begin? 
taking away my burden. Keep singing. Taking For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. All right, men, take it away. And wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me, for even me. Now sing it broader. <laughs> Scope of my transgression, sing it greater far than all my sin and shame, my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. Hey, good singing, folks. All right, give yourselves a round of applause and then sit down. Some of the teenagers up in the balcony were definitely swaying as if this were a drinking song, and that's all right. You ever paid attention to the words of the song, friends? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. It's higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me. Understand, friends, Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem that lies before us. Nehemiah was dealing with things and he dealt with some real problems in front of them. And if there's problems in the church, we have to deal with them. We have to deal with them directly. And you have to understand we cannot be fighting with each other. But the only solution is Jesus Christ. But friends, don't miss that we have Jesus Christ. And we cannot live in a battle with one another. And we're not dealing with anything specifically here in the church, but I am not foolish enough to think that that cannot happen. Nehemiah had dealt with a lot of the things that were on the outside, and there are times that we deal with things here that are coming from the outside, but when things come from the inside, as I said at the beginning, that struggle within, that internal affair is a problem that sometimes we don't deal with because we lose sight of the solution, the matchless grace of Jesus that is available to each and every one of us. As we go through this Nehemiah series, there's much building and rebuilding and, and things like that that come to mind for us very specifically here as a church. And so if we're going to live in that matchless grace of Jesus, we believe that there are some things, and we've laid this out for you this summer, and we're reminding you of it as we go through here. We, we want to do some things to expand our influence in this region. And if we do that, we have to understand that as we take on the building of the wall in many ways, that there will be an internal struggle that will come because that's the way the adversary works. And we have to be reminded that the solution is Jesus Christ. Those three bullet points that I gave you last week are some of the ways we expect to expand. We're trying to raise $400,000 for four major efforts. First, the, the facelift of the church, having the coffee bar, the bathroom, the upgrades throughout. 
being able to start a preschool here, to be able to do that during the week, to be able to use our facility more than just on Sundays, to update our sports complex out in the back so that we can have, particularly for the younger kids, some, some facilities that are available uh, here on our place, to transform what you know as a youth building into a community center that can be utilized for all types of different things. We're also looking to expand our church in the re relation to worship gatherings, to going to two worship gatherings with one focus, to be able to say we are going to be a place that's available more on a Sunday and we're going to create ways to fill this room and to fill the parking lot and to be able to utilize the gifts that God has given us in a very unique and special way here at this address and be good stewards of, of what we have. But if we are going to live in this matchless grace of Jesus, we're also going to expand our influence by expanding our focus. And we see around us, we see five major school districts. And so specifically here, we have five care corridors. And if you don't know what that is, we would love to tell you about that. They have deacons and elders who are able to take care to meet the needs of not only our church members, but the needs in the community. Why? Because the matchless grace of Jesus ought to be pouring out of us. He is the solution to our city's problems. You understand that? The wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through you, in his poverty, he might become rich. Jesus abased himself, put himself in a very low position so that we can live right lives before him. It is our responsibility to rebuild the walls, to rebuild hearts, to transform this community. That responsibility lies in you and in me. So often this morning if the community attendees will come forward, about once a month, we spend our time to be able to look at communion. It's a, a time of remembrance to be able to say that wonderful grace of Jesus that we live in, that space that, that we live in, is there was a sacrifice that was made for you and for me. And last week, if you were with us, we brought our children into the worship service, and we said, parents, teach your children about these things. Connect with them. Allow them to know and understand these truths. Why? Because they are vitally important to us as a church. They are vitally important to us as spiritual leaders, as disciplers of the next generation. But friends, don't miss its responsibility for you and for me. Don't listen to the message this morning and say, man, I'm really glad Brian's next to me because he needed to hear that this morning. No, no, no. God is working in each of our hearts and each of our lives. And his grace needs to wash over us so that we live different and transformed.